Jordan. Neil. So you finally entered the big leagues, huh? Yeah, yeah. And I'm very proud of it. You should be. Thank you. Because that looks like stuff that they have at ESPN filming basketball. Yeah, so for everyone listening (laughs) and watching, they're not going to know what we're talking about. We have new cameras. So hopefully the people watching on YouTube will notice the difference. I don't really know how to operate them yet. <laughs> so, so they might not notice the They might the not difference. be that good to start <laughs> off with. Um, You'd hope as much. Yeah. They're fancy. They look fancy. They look huge. But, but uh, they're not that fancy. They're uh, mid-range. Right, yeah. It's yeah. that art class camera that you can get if the art teacher likes you a lot. No, I feel like art class is more you want your... They go for their DSLRs. Oh, of course, yeah. All right, disregard. Yeah, this is a this is a, a handy cam, a camcorder. Um, probably a very boring conversation for most people listening. But yeah, we but should for keep a very going. Specific small yeah. sliver for a few for the filmmakers out there. Mm, they'd be really into this. We got some. But you know cameras. what? Actually, because we're not using enough of those DXLR two thousand things at the at the end of it. Even they're probably not interested. Because if you're not taught, it's just anything that's any niche technology, if you're not using the words at the end, so if you don't say, I don't know, Sony DSLR 200 or whatever, then they're just going, yeah, no one knows what you're talking about. So, but all I could say about it is they're big Sonys. They're very big, they're (laughs) huge Sonys. If uh, anyone ever comes over to watch the podcast live from my apartment, you will notice. (laughs) Hey, yeah, God tier patron, sign up. You know what? uh, this has happened maybe three times now. People have told me, hey, I really love the Neil and Jordan podcast. I listened to this one particular podcast. You got it all wrong, but it was a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you listen? It's a good question, but you can extend it to the entire audience. It's happened at least three times. Yeah, and I don't doubt them either. Yeah, yeah, no, neither I- do I. <laughs> what a phenomenon. It's so strange. And she was talking about the um, the podcast we did about coronavirus, and then I was talking about Spanish flu. Everything I said about that was from this one book called Pale Rider. So your uh, your qualms are with that book. Oh, so it was controversial. Um, uh, to her. To her specifically. But she still right. liked the podcast, yeah. apparently. So <laughs> well, I don't know why. Yeah. Okay. Well, some mysteries are not to be known. Keep it up. Tell your friends. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand either the appeal of this podcast, but it does seem to be growing. So we are very thankful for you to be there. Yeah, it's growing. Sitting a in lot. your car, that's good. Yeah, wherever you sit, wherever you, I don't. I can't imagine. And girls who again, listen to weird. this are driving. Why? I don't know. They just seem like the. Uh, Stay at home to themselves time. <laughs> <laughs> Did Probably she? Shouldn't, uh, 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 oh, I don't know. I don't know enough about her to to judge that. He's too polite to say uh, she was. Yeah, I don't want to go into a, a whole psychoanalysis of this one person, but she did say uh, I got a, I got a lot wrong. Mm. In fact, I think I got most of it wrong. Mm. So again, this, this is the book's fault. <laughs> Hail Rider. That's what it was called. So. Don't listen to the Spanish flu podcast. It's the gripe that everyone has with podcasts. That is our entire podcast. Just gleaning a couple of Wikipedia articles and then just faffing on. Um, That's the beauty of it. Yeah. I, I no, like no, it. It's content. 
Exactly. That's one thing that you could definitely say about this podcast. Neil and Jordan, it's content. <laughs> it's content, dot, dot, dot. It's content, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Neil and Jordan, ellipses, question mark. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I've got to say, though, it is really... It's uh, Thank you for, uh, you know, taking the initiative with all of this and me just being able to sit here because yeah. I've got to say, no, that's I do good. really enjoy these podcasts, particularly as I've seen you have just cheaped out and somehow made you my therapist. I'm always letting really That's heavy shit onto yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Despite the last podcast being all about personal responsibility, we can... Uh, yeah, I know. Let it You've out. You've taken Just, all of the personal responsibility I'm, for both of I'm us. I'm here to listen. I'm here for you. You actually are. And that's actually, what, dude, such a good segue of what I want to talk about because I want to talk about early childhood development. And that is... That's therapist squared. And this is definitely topics that we know a lot about. Yeah. This one in particular. <laughs> we're not going to get anything wrong on this, are we? Just before we start, I, I think we've definitely developed a very clear pattern to every podcast. It's a very awkward opening. I mean, people have told me this multiple times as well. Yeah, but it's always you, the you same. Why? Like, hey, because... Jordan, how are you? You're like, I'm good, Neil. How are you? <laughs> What have you been up to? And then it goes into just random banter that is just meaningless, essentially. And then out of a very poor segue, we start talking about high-end intellectual topics that we mostly know nothing about. When it's politics, you know about that. But everything else, we know nothing about. Mm. And thank you for subscribing. Yeah, look, it just raises more questions about why you're listening. Yeah. It really does. Like, okay, so uncomfortable start. Very confusing last forty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I'm glad we're having a go with all these heady subjects like space and pussy. Zero <laughs> <laughs> on par. Yeah, I think pussy is more complicated than space. Yeah, look, I, you know what? Well, definitely to astrologers for sure. They're not getting. <laughs> yeah, they're not getting. <laughs> yeah, so it's like it's actually not that much of a controversial statement. <laughs> Hey, do you want to talk about the ninth planet? Oh, wow. No. My <laughs> panties are off. I know. <laughs> but anyway, okay, <laughs> childhood development. Actually, before we get into childhood development, uh, as many of you would have uh, heard, we are now offering fan subscriptions. And thank you to the people who have already subscribed. And we are going to answer our first fan subscriber question. Oh, right. Yep. How do you feel about that? Can hardly wait. What is it? <laughs> How do Come you on. know so little about space? Is that it? No, it's more. Cheery, um, eh? It's more your realm, but um, I should have probably got, had this up on my laptop earlier. So now there's going to be an awkward one minute of and me. And you know what else as well? Just bringing when it up. I read the comments of people uh, checking us or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's not that far off. People just have a lot of knowledge on a very specific topic. But, That's true. You know, it's just a couple of things here and there. Couldn't be more wrong for the entire hour. <laughs> I had two things to take you up on. Yeah, I think uh, 95% of people, when it's not their uh, topic of expertise, they're thinking, yeah, this is great. Yeah, These exactly. guys know what yeah, they're talking know, about. <laughs> when we're talking about the topics that people actually know about, they're like, wow, <laughs> they're so out of their depth. All right. So, thank you very much to our first uh, fan subscriber question. It comes from Philip. 
from uh, Hillside in Victoria. On your feel. And he says... Good luck with the COVID. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rough. <laughs> Is Hillside in Melbourne? I don't know. Um, yeah, who knows? <laughs> who cares? <laughs> I know. It's such a New South Wales answer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, this is the question. With corruption rife in the elite of the world, how can one remain hopeful for a bright future? Also, do you think Australia will ever have anti-monopoly laws like Europe implemented after World War II, where someone can't own more than 30% of any given industry? Love the pod boys. Thank you, Philip. That's definitely more... Uh, your area of expertise, even though we've just established that. We don't know what we're talking about. So No, and especially when you're talking, this is just crystal ball gazing now because you can't really say what's going to happen in the future. But who knows? with more certainty than I have about most subjects on this podcast, I'm going to definitively say no. It's just going to get more and more concentrated. Obviously, the power. It's just, it's just been an upward spiral since World War II. There's, look, they, they point to parts of you know the Great Depression where they broke up the banks. <clears throat> there, there are instances of this throughout history, but most of history, it's the exact same pattern. Mm. A society just uh, coagulates a lot of power within a few hands. Obviously, that just becomes too corrupt to sustain itself, and then it starts declining. Do you believe in natural monopolies? Where a corporation or company is just so good that they develop an organic monopoly. If your if your YouTube videos were just so good that no one else watched mm. any other theoretically, channel, yeah. <laughs> theoretically, yeah, theoretically it could exist. So what, like pewds? It's not really yeah. a monopoly, though, is he? I suppose he's a monopoly on the dank memes, isn't it? Isn't it like the Pareto principle, where once someone has enough noise? and enough of a brand associated with them, more people are just attracted to that. Mm. So would that exist in, in business as well? So there's just an inherent advantage in the success you already have as a corporation. It's just going to grow unless you really screw it up. Yeah. Which they do. <laughs> and then the taxpayer bails them out. Mm -hmm. That's the pattern. I think that there's definitely a case for that, that there's certain corporations that... You, know, you just get, get into a position in whatever the field they're in. And that's why I just think, in general, you shouldn't be having that. Uh, maybe when it comes to really small-scale businesses, mm -hmm. maybe a monopoly there might be tolerable. But if you're talking about, say, with Australia, a corporate monopoly, or not a monopoly, but an oligopoly, just a few businesses owning the resources of a country mm -hmm. they might be good at extracting resources but does that mean they deserve it that's the question that you've got to constantly mm -hmm. be asking but the thing is i think that they just will continue to do that i don't think that there's any way out of it and you know what i was actually how do you define deserve though what makes them deserving of uh that concentration of power because if uh, consumers keep going to those corporations well, you've got no choice, do you? If you're, yeah. if you have a monopoly over something like water, which is happening now, yes. or you have a monopoly over food, mm -hmm. you have no choice but to go to that person. Mm. <laughs> By definition, you don't have a choice. So I think that we're just in that position. And I look, I think that there really isn't much that can be done about it at this point. It's too far gone on a political level. 
I think that if you want things to be changed, uh, the, the best way to do it is to change your superannuation because if you are able to control these companies, mm-hmm. then the people have control of those companies and therefore you're sort of governing by a reverse backdoor entrance. So I'm always saying to people, don't worry about voting. I mean, obviously you have to do that. That's great when it happens, but you should just be convincing as many friends as possible to switch to an ethical super fund because though they will go out and they can do things if they get big enough, like give us 100% renewable energy or uh, they could buy up, I don't know, aged care centers mm. or whatever and actually force them to look after the elderly. Mm. These things are possible, but it's kind of just a bit of a paradigm shift, which is that... Yes, politics is important. The decision makers that are there, uh, there's there's a huge difference between whatever party's in power. They make massive, massive decisions that ricochet out to the rest of the country. But it's that's not where all power lies. Most power lies in money. That's really interesting. I, I watched your cock-blocked video and I thought it was quite fascinating how you were telling people, hey... You weren't saying the government is incompetent. You're saying this government is incompetent. So you as an individual need to take your money and put it into this source. So essentially using your consumer's sovereignty and and take personal responsibility mm. to uh, move funds and, and money and essentially power towards more moral sources. Mm. That's definitely the way to do it, I think, in this day and age. Yeah, Everybody's just, always saying to me, you've got to go out in the streets and that protest. Comes down to How pers- often does that work? But that's, that's very much, uh, I just couldn't help but think, this is, pers- this is personal responsibility. personal responsibility. And it is also your personal responsibility so, to tell all your friends and family to do the same thing. Yeah, when people are like, well, Jordan's a lefty. I'm like, well, he's... <laughs> I don't know, yeah. He's saying the government, the government is useless. <laughs> and you as an individual... <laughs> Need to take responsibility. Yeah, there's, there's nothing left you to about vote that. with your wallet. Yeah, it's the trifecta. Hmm. So anyway, that's my All answer right. to you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Philip. Uh, er- anyone else who wants to uh, get a question answered by us, go to neilcohacker.com/slash/podcast and um, subscribe to the ten dollar a month subscription. But childhood development. What made you want to talk about that? Because man, I'm facing demons in my closet, and. It, All right, the, the therapy the, begins. It be- <laughs> Finally. Ugh, so much small talk. I'm definitely not an um, intuitive therapist because when you said you're facing demons in your closet, my mind immediately went to make a gay joke. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be a bad therapist. <laughs> That's so good. Really? Are you a homo? <laughs> First thing. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't don't do psychiatry. But, yeah. um, what what are these? What what demons are these? Well, it's just you know after you after you've been in a relationship for a long time, you start realizing that there's patterns there, and the initial pattern that always happens with everyone is that they tend to blame their partner for everything in the scenario. But the only agent that you can actually control in a relationship is yourself. It's just standard psychology, mm-hmm. but it takes a long time to get to the point where you even focus on yourself because it's very, very hard uh, to obviously look at yourself because you just live in your life, right? You you live in your reality. Everything in your reality appears real. It's just, you know, it's, it's the ultimate dreamscape is where you live. We we talk about it all the time, Mm -hmm. but 
taking uh, responsibility for your actions and even your actions within a relationship is a confronting and challenging concept. And it is very easy to blame your yeah, partner. Yeah, I know. So you're working against your own ego. You're working against your own ego. But I think that it goes further than that, which is not only is it easier, I think it's near impossible for you to reflect on yourself properly. It's it, I like it, it has to, to be impossible extent, to the yeah, fullest extent. Yeah, I agree. You can be a lot more self-aware than the average person, but that that is not that hard. It's not that high of a bar yeah. to be more self-aware than chicks on Instagram. You can get there. I love how that's your uh, always your <laughs> the bar for the average person in society. Chicks on is it, Instagram. Is it not for ours? For our generation, that's it. That's they're that's the, where the they're average, the celebrities of our generation. Yeah, but they all like very very average celebrities. I'm going to Carl's and showing everyone what I eat. Did you know that I like salmon? Ooh, scoop. Do um, you think? Do you think that your uh, interpretation and perception of them as two dimensional and, and stupid is actually your ego creating a narrative around them that makes you feel superior when in reality <laughs> they could be very complex human beings. Dude, you know what's really sad? Probably. <laughs> Well, I was thinking about this too, and I was like, this is all we do as comedians. It's, all I've done for seven years is portray <laughs> groups and subcultures as stupid for a laugh. Okay, actually. <laughs> and it makes me feel great. Yeah, I know! <laughs> Can I just say, audience, thank you so much for supporting us. It's such a sick job. But, <laughs> but like, oi, dude. Now that you bring that up, why do you think you have the need to do that? Um, I have uh, delved into that a few times. It's not pretty. Yeah. I do think it, it just comes down to insecurity, really, and a way to obtain social power by bringing others down, which is dark. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like that. But you got to pay the bills. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> i got to pay my gas. So I'm going to maliciously attack every subculture in this country so I can get convenient cooking. But here's the next question, dude. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you have uh, the need to do that? So if you've identified it, mm -hmm. why do you think that that like, hole is there? I, I think... Oh, if I were to speculate, it's an overcompensation for a lack of power that I felt as an adolescent or a child and a lack of control. So in this way, I'm able to control my perceptions and the world around me and box everyone into little subcategories and give myself a sense of righteousness by almost being this omnipotent observer, looking at all the different characters in Australia and 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 exaggerating their flaws to get views. <laughs> so uh, it's not pretty. No, these never are. No. But I think that they're profoundly interesting, and I think that they're very interesting for everybody at home as well because it is the most important thing to reflect on because we've... I don't know if we've even talked about it on the podcast before, but we've definitely talked about it before that we both identified in high school that if we were the clown, you'd have social acceptance and then that'd be your little role in the court, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. 
The thing is, though... Yeah, it's your way up the social hierarchy. It's your way up the social hierarchy, but I've been thinking about it further than that. Why did you choose that? Because you could have chosen sport. You could have chosen yep. to just be a nerd. Okay. Like there's there's all these roles that you could have played, True. but you identify you, you went for that one. I think on a subconscious level, uh, I was able to detect that this is with the with the tools I have in my arsenal, be it my uh, my brain power and my physical prowess was probably lacking in mm-hmm. that department. So it made sense to go down that round because it was with with the assets that I had, which were an ability to observe, ability to mimic impressions, things like that, I was able to use those to entertain people and bring others down and in um and at the same time give my sense uh give myself a sense of self worth yeah, so I don't think I was consciously aware of it, but I think. My uh, subconscious made a calculated decision that, hey, this is the best hand to play yeah. with what you've got. Yeah. Be the clown. But you had those traits. Yeah. And this is where I think it starts getting a bit scary. Okay. Because I was thinking about it. Look, everything that you say is always just an exact mirror of my high school, except I think there was a few more chicks at my high school. It was basically the same. But I don't know. We were, we were pretty 50-50. No, no, no. Not Unless... in terms of getting chicks. In oh. terms of availability of chicks. <laughs> <laughs> so right. I just blew it with more chicks. <laughs> and you were the model, so... I know. <laughs> um. But I, I I was thinking about it and I was reading all of these books about what happens in it's particularly uh, these these all are little strands that we've kind of talked about before. So I'm just going to try and bring them all together for everybody. But mm-hmm. how we were talking about the fact that it's a very modern con- uh, dynamic in. Uh, in in families now because of just the way that families have been set up in the modern world <clears throat> that the it gets so deep and dark where the dad is either always working or yep. they just don't love each other or they are divorced yeah which also happens a lot so in that scenario and this happens in reverse to women as well and you kind of just as we said before your relationship kind of just becomes a mirror of how your relationship was to your opposite sex parent. But particularly what happens is something called enmeshment, which is that the wife recognizing on a subconscious level that the husband no longer loves them or is too distant or is constantly working, any of those things where there's just a, there's there's like an emotional separation between the two. Yeah. They start putting the emotional needs of the husband onto the son. In sun scenarios, this is the exact reverse with women, men feeling lonely in the relationship and that their wife doesn't love them anymore. They start putting the emotional needs of that onto the kid, and it's emotional incest. It's That's emotional incest. It's a it's a dark term. And you know the book that I was reading, the, the truth. It's, 
the truth was, and yeah. then he was recommending a book that has the darkest title I've ever heard in my life. Are you ready for this? Silently Seduced. So Are you ready the, to read that? I assume the title is uh, referring to being seduced by your opposite sex parent. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, let me take a breath. <laughs> I know. I know. It's horrible. But it's not... It's not... Like, I, I think this is just... Because you know what? When I was describing my childhood... And I was saying that to my girlfriend. She mm. was just saying, wow, you just have classic white boy issues. It's just a thing that happens in the West. What was she referring to as white boy issues? You, you hear it all the time. Just guys being like, my mum was such a bitch. Fuck her. Like they, oh, they have that, yeah. right? Okay. It's because of that dynamic. It's because, and it's, it's, it's really... A societal problem. I don't even blame my mum for it. I don't blame so, anyone's mum for it, really. It's it's this is all very subconscious stuff. Do you think that because she was in if she was enmeshed with you and gaining her uh psychological and emotional needs through you, that you subconsciously were detecting that and detaching from that and in some ways resent her for that, and that's where a lot of the anger comes from? Yeah, because if you look at it, they say this all the time about enmeshed people. Just classic traits. I just list them all off. It was just a, a, a apt description of my life. Very conflict averse. I'm Mr. Tough Guy on the net talking to people that I don't know. But as soon as I know someone and they ask me for any favor at all, I'm there. I, I, I find it really, really difficult to say no to people that I actually know. Okay. Um. Uh, and that's the other thing that, that happens as well. In mesh kids, a lot of them, they just kept showing it over and over again. Lawyers. I basically am a fucking lawyer. That's really yeah. what my job is. And it's the same with comedians. As we said before, they're, they're pretty much lawyers. Mm. Um, where I think, just really quickly, where I think the uh, uh, white boy stereotype differs from the ethnic boy stereotype is that it's the mother is usually in those cultures, well, they're oppressed still. You know, then they don't have the same kind of freedom that white women do on average. And as a result, they put so much of their self-worth and their energy and their ambition into raising the perfect child. So you hear so many uh, Indians and ethnic men talking about, oh, there's so much pressure put on me. Mm. Mm. The mother is living vicariously through the son. Mm. So it's not... Mm. It's not the same sort of anger of like, oh, fuck you, bitch. But it's like, oh, I always, she's never happy. You know what? My and it's different, but it's, it's, it's still as negative an issue. Does this ring true with you? Because I was talking to my girlfriend about it and she was just saying, I just really wish I could tell my mom to fuck off. She was saying that. Yeah. I didn't have that problem. I called my mum a stupid cunt all the time. Like, it was, like when I was like yeah, 10. See, like, that's a, that's a, just a shocking <laughs> concept. Right? You get the shit beat out of You say you're a wog. You're not a wog. Uh, no wog can do that. I'm white. That's uh, as white as it gets. 
But did you, do you have that feeling though, where you could just you just wish you could tell your mum, just like you know, go fuck yourself. Not not necessarily that, but just you could t- pretty much yeah, just look, say, mum, br- no, I'm not doing that. Briefly, no. uh, I could go into it in a lot more depth. But yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. And did you feel because I see this happen a lot in ethnic families? there's all these different roles that subconsciously get put onto kids and they sort of just play it out for the rest of their life. So the real classic ones that you always hear, black sheep of the family, golden child, the lost yeah, child. Yeah. So middle child usually becomes the black sheep of the family. Well, as from when you're a child, you're the representative of that family. You are the, uh, you are the uh, emblem of value for other families because based on how well you do in school, usually determines the worth of the parents and the worth of the family. But see, that's just, that's very, like that That says a lot about your upbringing. Mine wasn't even compared. I look at some other ethnic families and uh, there's a lot more strictness there. Whereas I think my parents, they've spoken about this actually. They grew up with very strict, typical Indian parents and they had their I think they had their own issues that they were still dealing with and what can happen is then the parent overcompensates and goes too far the other way so I had times where they didn't even it it, it almost felt like they were too detached um it's it's funny like my dad sometimes uh talks about how he was raised and there was that you know this is how strict the the um brahmin indians uh, which is the highest caste in India, he wanted to do um, finance and they were like, no, you have to do engineering. So it wasn't like he wanted to be an actor or he wanted to do... <laughs> I can't remember if it was finance or it might have been psychology. It, the point is he wanted to do... I can't really speak for him, but he wanted to do something other than engineering, but it wasn't an artistic pursuit. It wasn't like singing or, or acting or anything like that. And the parents said, no, you have to do engineering. Mm. And then I think uh, he may have overcompensated, me and my sister, and uh, been almost too liberal in some ways, but then also had some of that ethnic strictness. And look, at the end of the day, you can't blame me. I'm out of that trap of blaming my parents for my flaws and things. They They did a very, very, very good job, and I'm very grateful no, it's not it's not necessarily about blaming. It's just understanding yes, that's, the behaviors that you have. Yeah, that's still important. I think that's still really important. But it's just very hard as you're understanding and comprehending some of these things, it's uh it takes a lot of effort to not get into a cycle of blame. Yeah, because it does. so many of your flaws you can draw a line back to uh the way that either you were enmeshed or uh, you, you were just your needs were un, left unmet, so you have to be able to observe that and be aware of that without placing blame on onto them and becoming too resentful. Because then, what happens? The cycle continues. Then you will overcompensate for your kids, and they will have some other issues. Mm. I think that's like the the main takeaway that I've been getting from all of these books is that it doesn't matter what you do, your kids are going to have issues. So it's your job to try and develop them to be as self-aware as possible. That's pretty much the aim of being a parent. But I think that this is the other thing that I used to get do into you want, a lot. Because do you of, want to be a parent? 
yeah, at some point. Hmm. It's probably coming up soon, but uh, I used to get into the opposite trap, which was because I just read so much self-help that I was always saying that, you know, you're the captain of your destiny, whatever, like none of that stuff matters. You just work with what you have. Mm-hmm. And that works to a certain degree. It definitely does. But then when I started reading these books, I started thinking even the the methods that I chose of being successful, right? Like the reason that I chose comedy, uh, the fact that I, I, it just hit me the other day. I never leave my house, ever. I'm very happy just sitting in a room my entire life and I don't feel any, any, any fear of FOMO, like I'm missing out, none of that. You link that back to my childhood. It was just because my mum was a psycho. She used to always just go nuts every time we had to leave the house, anytime anybody used to come to the house. There was always just a lot of anguish around the house as soon as anyone did anything mm. in the outside world because she was just, you know, she's a very fearful person, and, right? So, and do you know much about her upbringing that may have caused some of those issues she had? No, no, they were actually, I think because of personal things that were happening around our life at the time, which, okay. you know, on fairness to her, I can't go into. But just to give you a quick summary, for someone who lives in the developed world, she was experiencing hardships. Yeah. Um, you know, like just, just I, I'd be scared if I was her as well, right? And so that was happening. But these things just get transferred onto the kids or whatever. So like, again, I don't blame her for it, but mm-hmm. this is the result that was happening. Because that was happening, because there was just, you could never predict when my mom was going to explode. And it was a single household, right? So just a young kid trying to figure out the pattern of when she was going to explode and over what. And it was always arbitrary. It was just like walking around a landmine. But there was certain things that you knew, okay, we're, we're in for it today, which would be, I don't know, we're going to go on a camping trip or... Uh, you know, we're going shopping or even leaving for school. You just knew that those were danger zone moments. As such, my sanctum was my room because if I was in there quietly out of the way, there was less chance of the explosions. Mm. So I spent heaps of time in there and I spent a lot of time with Lego and I spent a lot of time with imaginative games, again, because my mum wouldn't allow me to have computer games. So I think that that definitely worked towards me having a very creative mind because I was just constantly using it, constantly tinkering away, and I was constantly by myself. Yeah. So those things all attributed to it. So you have an an, an emotional kinship with uh, your room and your sanctuary. You don't like going out because you feel... And I just noticed it the other day. Every time I leave the house, I have this thing of just like, ah, oh, fuck, this sucks. I fucking hate leaving. Like, yeah. you actually feel that emotional intensity that was still there from when you were a kid. Today. Mm. Today, that's still there. It's still mm. dictating what I do in a day. This is what I'm saying. This is why it's very... It's confronting. Very it? conf- it's confronting. Yeah. It's confronting. But like, look, I... I it, it, as you say, like, you know, thank God that the, the net exists today. So I'm able to utilize those things. I think I have a much richer inner world than the average person because of that very lonely upbringing where mm. I don't even register it as loneliness anymore, but also creativity. But you have the net so you can kind of just broadcast you you playing Lego as an adult. Mm. 
and you can make money off that now. If that wasn't there, I'd be fucked. But there's all these things that are happening behind the scenes. So when I'm saying to you, like, you know, oh, sorry, you go. No, you go. I was just going to say on a little sidetrack, I think that's why the people who are naturally drawn to be YouTubers and internet celebrities are very different to the sort of people that are drawn to be TV, film, or other traditional forms of celebrity. Mm. Because being an internet celebrity is about garnering attention, but it's that kind of faceless attention where you can stay in the sanctuary of your little, well, really safe space in the world. Mm. And you can uh, reach other people without having to d actually deal with them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like insecure introverts that still want attention in a weird way. Um, I just want to talk really quickly about a very similar thing I've noticed with, with me, which is that the big factor growing up uh, that was ascribed to, to, to me and, and how I was, I think, valued was, you know, how well are you doing in school? Are you studying? See? Are you getting good grades? So, yeah, to this day, I, always, I, I take a lot of pride in being that very organized, hardworking, studious, conscientious person, but I don't like it. Why not? I just don't like every, it's the same as that same feeling that you described when you leave the house. Every time I sit there, I have this to-do list. It's all meticulously planned out. As soon as I start doing it, I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I just want to, I want to finish. Yeah? Yeah. And I've noticed that lately because okay. I think I put so much, there was so much pressure and that I still feel the after effects of that pressure. So while you're doing the list, you feel the pressure. Yeah. I don't enjoy it. Is it a relief to finish the list? It's a relief to just stop. And then I find myself just, you know, doing what most people would do, scrolling through social media or whatever. Oh, wait, and so it's a, it's a relief to just not do... Hang on, so it's a, it's a relief not to do the tasks. Yes. So to, to but distract I, but yourself But there's so much it. pressure that I always feel to do them. So you kind of just push through the uncomfortableness yes. and yes. see, this is the other thing that's scary. So what's happening there is like, you're just used to that feeling yep. because it's in your childhood. Yeah, I know. So it's not actually like a, you don't actually like that. It's weird, isn't it? Like you, it's a bad emotion, mm. but it feels comfortable. Mm. And it so was, you just do it. And, it. and it influenced so many other views I have about other people, culture, even politics, I think to a certain degree. Because I always grew up with this mentality that, oh, if people aren't doing well, it's because they didn't work as hard as me. They mm. just didn't work as hard as me. Mm. And I wouldn't even want to, I wouldn't even want to comprehend or try to understand other points of view. I just had that, even though I hated the hard work. And your dad has that view, right? Uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I again, very briefly, I would say yes. Mm. I'm sure he'd have a lot more to say on it. Mm. Uh, he's got a web, SavvyStreet.com, if you want to check out my dad's <laughs> website. S-A-V-V-Y-Street.com. Mm. Mm. Very so smart So it's man. really, I've heard as much. I think... You should debate him. He He would disagree with you on pretty much everything. Yeah, I'd imagine he would. <laughs> But the, it's it's interesting though that you. 
I mean, try look, very hard to have an open mind, though. Everyone, I don't think anyone really likes studying and hard work and things like that. But I've noticed and observed other people doing it. Whereas when I, because I've also adopted that mentality of like, this is how I value myself based on how hard I work and 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 just this immense organizational capacity and ability for success uh that that has actually made me not a nice person in in some ways i've worked on it um but, don't but you- i still feel it every time i've got that big list and then i'm, I'm like fuck, fuck i've got to fuck <laughs> i don't like doing it yeah i've 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 um i've tried other things to to get around that feeling I don't think, though, that it's you. What what do you mean? I don't think you value yourself on that. You've convinced yourself that you value yourself on that, but clearly your parents valued you on that. Hmm. And so this is just transferred onto you, and it's just so deeply ingrained that that's now your belief about yourself. Because I have that shit all the time. Yeah. You know, the one that I'm always talking about of just like, I can handle people calling me an idiot, you know, anything, uh, you know, ugly, stupid, doesn't, just rolls off. But as soon as someone says, I'm not telling the truth, that's when I get pissed off. And again, and that does, it was does... because that was my mum's massive value. And she yeah. used to be insane about it. She used to just say like, you know, I, I always tell the truth. I've never said a lie in my life. And then you catch her out on a lie and you point it out. And, and she'd just have a complete meltdown. She'd just, like, burst into tears, leave the room. Uh, she, she, she really instilled and was constantly accusing me of lying as well. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, now I still just to this day have this real pain associated with someone accusing me of lying. And so the more I'm thinking about it, the more I just realize... It, Every part of your being, there's, there's, it really seems like there's certain leeway into what you're going to be successful with, but you are just going to follow out essentially the script that was assigned to you. It's exactly the same thing with my girlfriend's family. She's the golden child. Uh, it was kind of just expected all the time that she would do really well in life. And what does she do with everything she ever takes up in? Blitzes it. Blitzes it. Then they thought the black sheep, the next one down the line, she was always the problem child. What is she today? Massive problem. Then the third child, the lost child, the one that sort of just gets ignored because they were just much busier in their careers at that point. Yep. So what does she do? Constantly acts out and looks for attention. It's the script. Yep. It's the script that you're given. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in a relationship, for instance, with my relationship, I just I was always saying to two you're not intimate you don't reveal things about yourself to me and it just suddenly hit me no it's the exact opposite way around it's it's me that doesn't reveal anything in a relationship and i don't ever reveal anything about how i'm feeling ever because when i was a kid this is what happens with enmeshed parents they sort of download their needs and wants and uh, 
you know, you know, their fears and insecurities onto you. Mm. And so you have to constantly sit there and listen to them. And you have to suppress and their yours. feelings. So yeah, your yeah. feelings aren't important in that relationship. Their feelings are the ones that are important. Mm. And so you go through life and it's just a regular pattern. They're called love avoidance. And lo- lo- people kind of just sit on that spectrum of either being a love addict or a love avoidant. Love avoidance always sit in this pattern of just being like, I'm just going to find someone who needs a lot of help. I'm just going to help them out heaps. I'm just going to pretend that everything's fine. And what happens when you just pretend everything's fine is that slowly resentment builds up. Yes. Then you break up with that person Mm. and then you repeat the cycle. Mm. This is all the result of a childhood like childhood wounds, I guess is the that word. resentment builds up, and then it comes out in very unhealthy ways. Unhealthy ways, strange yeah. ways, just like you know, just a big delusion, burst. a lot of delusion. Yes. So the yeah. fact that just me, for instance, just being like, you're never intimate with me. Well, am I ever intimate with her? No, no. And even the thing when it came to being a class clown, you know, I actually think it was the case. This is why I'm interested to just go further back than high school when it comes to that, right? Mm. I think that the main reason I became a a class clown, because again, I could have chosen other things to choose. And like the fact that I was just like, well, I've got these abilities. I may as well go with that. That's part of the story. You do have some natural abilities that are raised to you, but you also have ones that are just sort of instilled onto you. But I just noticed, I think the major reason that I became a class clown is because in my household, there was just this constant emotional turbulence all the time, constant yelling, screaming, crying, just a lot of that. And so I was always just trying to figure out ways to try and mellow that out as much as possible. I think that when it came to being a class clown, there was just this natural compulsion there to make sure that everything's light and jokey, can't handle you know things getting a little bit aggressive, a little bit... A little bit uh, you know, you know, like uh, awkward, anything like that, any, any, any darker emotion than just being like a, a game show or whatever, couldn't handle it, would freak out. So I was just, you figure out that humor yeah. is the easiest way to keep everything light and jovial all the time because you can just dab it over everything mm. and then instantly it becomes kind of, it just becomes lighter. That's really interesting. I've always thought my inclination towards comedy is more based in, a way to obtain power because I was always, I wouldn't say I was maliciously bullied as a child, but I was always the smallest, uh, probably the most sensitive, you know, the other kids were playing bull rush and football. And I don't know if it even came from my, uh, my parents as such. Uh, there were times when my dad would be quite aggressive and, and yelling. Um, and I just felt like I didn't have any physical power or any stead in, in, in that sense, so I formed a way to obtain influence and power through my uh, mimicry and my ability to bring people down, not with my fists and not with my, I don't know, tackling ability, but in my way of putting them down, in my satirical depictions of them. And I was doing that from... As a child, I was making fun of my family members and other people in my school from primary school. And my biggest videos today are the ones where I've ruthlessly attacked a group of people because I'm not happy with them. Mm. And it's a it's 
it's actually quite a lot of power, I think, that ability that I have to truly belittle either one person or a group or an idea or a culture in, what, a two-minute video? Yeah. No, you, you, it is. It definitely is. But I think there's just something there that's... Because like, yeah, look, I I I identify with that as well. I understand that that's definitely a big component to it, but it still doesn't explain the vehicle why you chose that one. It's kind of like I chose it for these reasons, but there has to be something subconscious that was just instilled into you that made you come to that conclusion yourself. I just don't think these things just come out of nowhere. Well, as you said, laughter is is very non-confrontational. So it's a way to bring someone down, but in a very, in a subversive way. Because if you're making fun of someone and they start fighting you, you've you've lost the physical battle, but you've won that psychological battle. You've definitely won the psychological you've battle. You've under their skin. Yeah, well, yeah, if they're beating you up. But usually what happens in that situation is they kind of just laugh at it as well. Yes, but is that of- their way of deflecting the attack? I think it just depends on how healthy their ego is. Sometimes it could just be yeah. like a, yeah, you got me. But see, that I think just really depends on how loving your parents were. I think there's just a, a real association between if your parents loved you, as in, and I think that the clinical description that they use for that is that they uh, made decisions that were in the benefit of your emotional needs Mm. they were thinking about that Mm. they were thinking about that a lot that's essentially what love is yeah not their idea of what is sometimes they may have to sacrifice their preconceived notion of what is uh, the best outcome for you in adapting to the psychological needs of a particular child yeah and a lot so, of parents don't do that. They've got one idea of like, this is what you're going to be. This is what's going to be best for you. Yeah, they're, they're pushing the identity onto the kid yes, instead of, and this is the other parenting trick that I've just looked at a lot, which is that most parents just aren't inquisitive at all. They just have this idea in their head that you're going to be this. And then you become it. You become it yes. subconsciously. And it just throughout the rest of your life kind of goes that way. And it so is. Do, do we even have a sense of self or is it just see truly a product of our environment i think that it honestly depends on whether or not your parents loved you if if they did in that very clinical way that we're talking about you will have a sense of identity but you know what people that are constantly like enmeshed are, are always reporting that they don't know who they are and I always noticed this when I was doing comedy. I was always like, I'm not personally funny. I don't really have a character, but I'm good at adopting other characters. I'm, the, I'm exactly the same, yeah. So essentially, there's nothing there. Because if you have a character, you kind of have an identity. There's a soul to that. But if you don't have that identity... What and and this no, is the other thing on. is like you pick what I but are you saying that your identity your identity doesn't necessarily have to be funny, not, not identity. Uh, 
what's it, like self identity, uh, like an un- at least like an imprint in your own mind of who you are. Uh-huh. The people that I know that are naturally funny every time, it's because they are a character. They have these traits that you're always just like classic Tom, you know. There's there's that to them. But definitely when it comes to it, like... Huh? Is that a symptom of uh, a, a greater sense of identity or is it just a symptom of a different type of identity, which is the, the funny identity? No, I... It's because this is not... This goes beyond... This goes beyond funny. It's like... It's, it's an element of funniness. It's an element of funniness... Is just like they have certain characteristics that you can kind of just pick up on and mm-hmm. they're uniquely them. And they're uniquely them because they're kind of just happy in themselves and so they're just allowed to let themselves be. And they're yeah. allowed to let their natural personality flow out because in their household, they were encouraged to be themselves. They, well, they were secure enough to be themselves. Their parents were sitting there and just being like, you know, the fact that you exist is good. <laughs> you know, they, they had that thing sure. to them. Whereas when parents are constantly pushing you into a certain identity, I think that what happens is you can't, they, they sort of hollow you out. I think that's mm. what happens with me because I just do not think I have any personality traits that are uniquely mine. I remember my entire life just being like, oh, I like that, uh, that little piece of that person's identity. I think I'll take a bit of that and I'll, I'll just take a bit of that and, and and uh, the things like, you know, if I ever did stand up at school, dead. If I started doing impressions or I started doing a character, everything went alive. And it's because I think I was sort of just trained as a kid to perform. Like, you know, I'd go to school crying because of what was happening at school. Like, this is early ages or whatever, yeah. like year two or whatever. But, you know, and then kids would just be like, what's the matter? And I'd just be like, yeah, everything's fine. You know, like, it's, it, you're just constantly pretending that everything's okay. So, you actually get really good at acting. You get really good at just performing and uh, you, you have to look around your environment to see how you're going to fit into that scenario because you're just constantly trying to mirror what's happening around you. So I think that's what happens there. And then I would say two things to that. That forced identity is a very fragile identity. Yeah. It can be broken down very easily, whereas people who are extremely secure with themselves, you can just tell nothing really gets to them. Yeah. Um, See, and it's, what is it again? It's healthy ego. Sure. But then do you think that through some of those incredibly intense trials and tribulations, it has forced, well, coming back to, Genes almost, which we were talking about before the start of the podcast. It has turned on certain genes within you and uh, certain... It has is, it is brought out this person that is a very unique individual because the circumstances you went through were... Well, you faced a lot of adversity and they were in many ways traumatic, but they were very different to what the average person around you would have faced. And as a result, you are actually quite a unique, you have a quite a unique identity in that way, even if it is a forced identity. Yeah. Do you understand? Do you yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. understand what I'm saying? No, you, you no, that's, that's it's, very, very true. It's the, the, basically the tortured artist. It's the tortured artist, uh, personality. Mm. You, you see it all the time. Like you, you read, any biography of a creative, it's sort of, it's it's very similar. There's there's very similar elements there. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. 
It's, but I think that it can uh, go into art or um, you can become a psychopath, basically. Funnily enough, they, they probably have similar childhoods. They have similar the childhoods. Best, the best uh, artists and, and the best serial killers. Well, there is usually a creative flair to it. Because, hmm. again, look, it's all just about you're sort of just assigned certain behaviors and beliefs. Yeah. And that's that's what I'm saying is like that's that's sort of you. And then with those behaviors and beliefs, you sort of go through life and those behaviors and beliefs guide your actions after that. Mm. So, yeah, man, I don't know. I'm just saying, and I'm not expecting you on a podcast in front of thousands of people to just come up with it. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, and also I'm just uh, telling everybody there at home as well. I think it's really, really beneficial to sit down and then just write about your childhood. Sit there and write about every memory you have. Earlier the better. Work your way up from there. You'll start noticing patterns. And I'm talking early days. As early as you can remember. And you'll start seeing it... it it becomes very clear very quickly. And then obviously you read books on child development because it kind of just guides the way that you're going to be writing about it. But you will start seeing why you do the things you do. And you will realize, I think, that you do not have anywhere near as much autonomy as you thought you had. And the, the, the actions that you're taking, even the ones that you're proud of, It'll have a different light to it because, I, like, when I was when I was always talking about being the class clown or whatever, I just remember mm-hmm. similar things to what you were saying. But I think that if you look at earlier childhood, it makes sense why you just went, "Oh, well, obviously, I'll just assume the role of class clown." That's interesting. I haven't sat there and looked at my really early childhood to that degree. I often tend to look at my uh, later primary school and high school years, but no, you're right. Because the, the most true development one, right? comes from those really early years. It's like what I was saying before about the Seven Up thing. How you just you you look at kids from private schools, and they said, "What university do you want to go to?" And then they were just like, mm, "I think I'll go to Cambridge. No, I, I yeah. might go to Oxford." That's not their identity. That's the identity that has been exactly. instilled into them. Yeah. What what fucking year seven year old naturally thinks about Oxford University? Mm. But it's exactly the same with the orphans. They ask the orphans, what do you want to do? And their response every time was like, what's university, mate? They didn't even know. And they all ended up being brickies and shit. But how do you, I mean, to a, you got to uh, influence children in, in, in some way and they will organically develop a sense of identity. So how do you know as a parent if you're forcing that on them or they're evolving that themselves? And then there's also the peers at school, even from primary school, preschool. They could have an influence, the teachers there, what they watch on TV. It's all true. So there are so many factors at play. The parents are uh, incredibly significant, but there are a myriad of other factors at play. There is. That will influence the identity of a, of a child. But, and there's a reason that this is such a famous quote from Freud, show me the boy at seven, I'll show you the man. 
<laughs> those listening, my cat just jumped on the table. I've got to put her in the bathroom. So I think that's the way, like it's, it's, it's the early ones. It's the early ones that have the most influence. It sort of just sets the pattern for the rest of your life. Hmm. And so if, everything that I know, that I've, I've noticed about myself, uh, it's, it's, yeah, like it's it's very self-explanatory when you read a few books about um I would raising. What do you think of this that those childhood experiences have influenced your emotional response to various things that may trigger a similar a similar situation and recreate the same environment as your childhood, but it doesn't necessarily define your identity and confine you to a specific type of person. It confines you to a specific set of emotional responses, but those emotional responses uh, can be put to use through different identities, some that may be better suited to your uh, psychological makeup. So say if I'm, you know, I find that like I said, I have that real resentment when I have to sit down and, and just do things that I feel pressured to do. But at the same time, I have this immense energy and enthusiasm when I am interested in whatever it is that I have set out all these things to do. And that can fade quite quickly. So I think I've come to the conclusion that what the identity, if you will, that's best suited to that psychological makeup is to have a lot of hobbies, but constantly be refreshing them. So like last year I was obsessed, like two years ago I was like obsessed with gardening. And I mean obsessed, like I read a lot about it. And mm. as you see my uh, balcony, but then after a while, it just feels like a chore. And then I became obsessed with um, well boxing. And right now I'm in a phase where I'm just obsessed with it. But I know there'll come a time next year where I'll probably... F- feel like it's work again Mm. and we'll have that same huge resentment having to endure the day-to-day disciplines of uh improving in that in that skilled area so i've found that constantly updating and refreshing my uh my hobbies and and just the things that i'm interested in and it shows in my uh my uh videos as well i think and just my uh, body of work over eight years, there's never been a period of two or maybe two years and then I have to like change the style. I'm like, I'm sick of this. I need to do something different. Mm. Like I got two podcasts going. I did not, you know, I was doing two-minute sketches and now boom, two really long-form podcasts. I just have to keep refreshing because then I stay enthused in what I'm doing. But my point is, if you're able to identify some of those psychological traits that have been influenced by your your childhood, I don't know if it necessarily defines your identity. I think it defines certain responses that you may be more inclined to have. But I think you can find an identity or you can find ways that and and things that are best suited to those responses that you've developed as a child yeah and i think you've done a pretty good job at that i mean you've sort of analyzed that 
you know, you talk about how you you really enjoy just destroying people, but in that online setting, and you really do. Like I'm seeing some of those videos, my God. <laughs> but that's a way that, you, you, you know, that capacity you have to truly criticize someone and just pick them apart from every which way may have been heavily influenced by the events in your childhood. But you found a way to utilize that in in an efficient manner. But I don't think that necessarily is um, is limiting your identity because you could have then used those same urges for much more nefarious means. You could be out in public just, you know, punching, getting drunk and just punching people because it's that same outlet and it's that same psychological response so what do you think about about that that it, it, it the childhood development defines your responses and it can define aspects of your personality but you still have some not not an infinite level but some level of control over your identity no you do you do and as I've always said, the example of just me picking up that Tony Robbins book, if I didn't do that, then I don't think that all of this stuff would have happened as a result of that. But it, it required very random circumstances mm-hmm. that it was just there and I had the inclination to pick it up and read it at that particular point in time, right? There's still a lot of chance in this. And even the fact that you're saying that, the fact that you think that is because you've read enough self-help to realize that you do have agency over your behaviors. But if you don't realize that, which most people will probably go through their lives just thinking, that's just who I am. That's the way God made me. Whatever. Cradle to grave. That will be that person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you do have agency over it if you recognize what it is. But I think that there's just even deep-seated things that you don't remember about your childhood and you never will because it happened too long ago and that is going to have a huge impact on how you behave for the rest of your life and how you see yourself. As we were just saying before, there's behave, just things yes, you can't... Behave, yes, but the see yourself, do you, do you, can, you, can you go into a bit more detail about that? About how, how you see yourself? Yeah. Man. There's something that they talk about a lot in these books um, where they just talk about your inner critic. If you listen to the negative voice in your head, it's just your parents. It's your fucking parents. Okay. Well, just that, always in your head. Well, that would apply. Yeah. I agree would with that. that. Yeah. So if that's always there, and that's just the constant back chat in your mind that's like pretty close to the conscious level. Mm, and that. What else is happening that's just like random accidents that happen to you as a kid that you don't remember? And True. That negative reinforcement is in many ways subconsciously molding your identity and it always will and it always will be now do you think you can control that with enough practice and yeah maybe some therapy even you can whether or not you fully eliminate that inner critic you can at least vastly reduce the adverse effects it may have yes yes you can you, you definitely can, but I'm just saying 
it's a really painful experience. And I, 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 again, because of my like upbringing, I really hate admitting this. But I've been reading a lot about this over the last few weeks and I've been doing the activities and I don't think I've cried more in my entire life. You just keep reliving really painful experiences that, that you know what, like they're there. They are there mm. and you you sort of do remember them, but you don't actually really focus on it ever. It's just like this kind of blip that goes into your mind and then you just think, oh, well, that's unpleasant. And so you just think about something else or you just, you just move yeah. it aside or whatever. But the point of focusing on them is that it gives you just such a, a broader sense of where you are and how you behave, especially in relationships, what your pattern is with your relationships, you will see it being acted out. However your relationship was, was with, with your opposite sex parent, it's going to explain everything about how you currently behave yeah. at the moment. Yeah, those really are the demons in your closet, aren't they? They yeah. are the demons. The, the, the thoughts that you're most aware of are the things that are just flying through your head on a day-to-day -day level, but on the periphery, uh, they're there in the darkness, aren't they? And they are controlling and your behavior. The way you interpret the information that you gather even today. Yeah, th see, that's even the scarier part. It's not just your behavior. Yeah. It's just the way that you view the world. Mm. And you it, perceive something and then those demons just uh, concoct the way that your brain will truly receive it. Exactly. Like just the fact that you were saying that you have this constant like, and even though it's like a little niggling torment, just, just writing out the list. The fact that you feel the necessity to write out the list and also that you hate doing the list and that it just stresses you out doing the list. I don't have the same response when I write a list. When I write a list, it's, there's very little emotional response yeah. attached to it. That's you. That's a filter in your head. Yeah. There's fucking millions of these. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Well, well. First of all, thank you for sharing. Yeah, no worries, I guess. <laughs> but see, see, that's the thing, man. As soon as someone mentions emotions, I start getting. If you if you rewind on this, you'll see it. I just like start darting around, and I get a little smaller, and and my instant response is to say something funny to just deflect off the fact you're just being like, I don't know, feelings, it's fine. You like, did that, yeah. yeah. You, you, just, you literally just did that. It's, it's, a, it's a visceral response. I could feel it in my body just then. Like as soon as you said that, like you just said, thanks for sharing. Yeah. It was just like this like jab straight at my heart that was like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's what happens. So I'm, I don't know. I'm just mm. saying that there's, everyone has these things and you should be looking at what they are. Yeah, second that. Um, well, thank you for, for listening, ladies and gentlemen. And please subscribe. Please follow on Spotify and, and uh, the Apple Podcast app. If you if you listen to this regularly, make sure you do click the subscribe or follow button. Um, and we will we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.